and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the Motherhood Made Magic podcast. I am your host, Anna Cusack, a postpartum doula, author, and all-around COVID-19 nerd. Today, I'll be doing some myth-busting, so buckle up and listen in. When someone starts off a statement with, I don't mean to be racist, but you know they're about to say something racist. Same with, I don't want to sound rude, but you know they're almost certainly about to hurt your feelings. When someone starts a COVID-related post or comment with just asking the question, chances are they're not asking questions. They're trying to either plant seeds of doubt or passing on seeds of doubt that someone else has planted in them. Instead of making false claims outwardly and the person immediately noticing it's bogus, the hope is you will ponder without any further info and scroll past a little more fearful or perhaps angry than before, or go searching for answers and find yourself in a conspiracy web that they have likely fallen victim to themselves. It's an effort to sound rational and considered instead of loopy, and often it works. Let's bust some of those claims. Instead of saying, the doctors, scientists, and all the important health organizations of the world are lying to us, they'll say, just asking the question, Why are doctors and scientists who question the jab being silenced? Look, if your grandma had a dodgy looking sunspot on her cheek, would you want her listening to the doctor that told her to eat an apple while rubbing primrose oil on her face in a clockwise direction 17 times thrice daily, or the one who spoke with her about removing the cancerous sunspot before it spread somewhere else? 99.9% of scientists agree that climate change is real. 99.9% of historians agree the Holocaust happened. 99.9% of astronomers and physicists agree that humans did indeed go to the moon. And 99.9% of doctors and scientists agree COVID-19 is real and vaccination is effective. Giving the 0.1% who don't a platform to suggest otherwise is hugely irresponsible, as well as jeopardising the health of their own patients and the community beyond that. Claim 2. Instead of saying, vaccines simply don't work, they'll say, just asking the questions. If vaccines don't stop you from getting COVID or passing it on, why do we need vaccine passports? Vaccination against COVID does reduce your risk of catching it by around 80% against the alpha strain and a little less against the delta strain. And you can't pass on what you don't have. It also reduces your risk of passing it on if you do get infected. People who are vaccinated are less likely to need to go to hospital and have a lower risk of needing ICU care. The vaccination passport idea is to reduce the spread of the virus and lower exposure risks as much as possible to people who either can't get vaccinated or don't want to and protect the health system enough that everyone will be able to access hospital care if they need it. In New South Wales, the roadmap out of lockdown indicates that as of the 1st of December, there'll be no differences in restrictions for vaccinated and unvaccinated people. In Denmark, they too have done away with vaccine passports once they reached a certain vaccination target. The vaccine passport strategy has been used previously for international travel as well. Family members travelling in Europe in 1960s have told me about having to show their smallpox vaccination scar to Border Patrol to be allowed into different countries, and I've been required to carry proof of vaccination for yellow fever when travelling in Asia as well. Claim 3. Instead of saying, I don't believe COVID-19 vaccines are safe or claiming 
these vaccines change your DNA? They'll say, just asking the question, why do these drugs get, through, get pushed through so fast? How can we be sure they're safe when they mess with your DNA? And so much is still unknown about them. The process of developing drugs and vaccines is generally a slow one, taking a decade or more. Research and development teams work on something in labs, then go about testing them on animal models, getting approvals to test them on humans, testing the drugs on the humans, reviewing the data, getting more approvals, making sure they get enough funding to keep going, slowly enrolling and testing more people, analyzing more data, waiting in queues for review and approval from regulation boards, etc., etc. What we're seeing now is what can happen when money is thrown at a problem, when thousands of people volunteer to be test subjects on the spot and their projects get fast-tracked to the top of any queues on review boards. The phases of normal clinical trials have not been skipped. Over 6 billion doses have been administered and real-world data is available on tens if not hundreds of thousands of people across the world. If you're wondering about mRNA vaccines, that's Pfizer and Moderna, the technology behind these has been in the works since the 1990s and parts of it have been used in clinical trials for other things like cancer treatments since the mid-2000s. And no, they don't alter your DNA. They deliver a recipe to the part of the cell, the part outside the nucleus, the nucleus being where the DNA is stored, to make a special protein that your body then has an immune response to. The fragment of recipe-giving mRNA is quickly destroyed within two or three days. And within two or three days, your body will have started to make antibodies. The second dose consolidates the number and effectiveness of those antibodies to help you not pick up coronavirus in the first place and fight it without your body having a cytokine storm freak out if you do. That is what's uh, implicated in the organ shutdown and really severe disease in healthy people, as I'll get to later. No, the mRNA does not get into human milk, but the antibodies do. So if you're lactating, it's likely to protect your little ones too. If you're still not convinced about the new mRNA ones, AstraZeneca is an old school vaccine that uses the same kind of technology as all the other shots you might have had in the past, where a modified deactivated virus is injected and your body responds to it by making antibodies. AstraZeneca's protection against severe disease is not quite as strong initially, but it seems to maintain its effectiveness for longer than the Pfizer one does. Claim four. Instead of saying, vaccines harm unborn babies, they'll say, just asking the question, why weren't pregnant people tested in trials? What could this be doing to our babies that they don't want us to know? It is normal for pregnant and lactating people to be excluded from clinical trials. This is both sensible and very frustrating. Unlike many other drugs, COVID-19 vaccines were given to pregnant people who volunteered to get them, mostly healthcare workers in high exposure areas, before animal studies on pregnancy and lactation were done. Those animal studies have been done now. The results are all clear and formal human pregnancy trials are now underway. So far, population data studies tell us there is no increased risk for miscarriage or infant loss if a mother is vaccinated between six weeks preconception and delivery at full term. We also know there is no increased risk of congenital conditions for those vaccinated in the second and third trimester. We are awaiting more data on outcomes for babies of women and birth parents vaccinated preconception and in their first trimester because human babies take time to bake and to birth. 
We also know that infection with COVID-19 in the late second and third trimester can be very dangerous and is linked to significantly higher likelihood of a stay in ICU and preterm birth. It is also linked with a 2.1 times mortality, so death rate amongst late pregnant mothers compared to non-pregnant women. All this data is discussed in my research review videos on my page if you would like to know where that is up to and on this podcast too. Claim number five. Instead of saying, don't get vaccinated, use natural health methods, they'll say, just asking the question, why aren't we being told about other ways to keep ourselves healthy? Yes, the usual things we can do to stay healthy apply here too, but they can only go so far. The difficulty with coronavirus is that serious disease comes from two different pathways. The first we would be familiar with is someone with a poor immune system and low reserve capacity being overwhelmed with a virus. This explains deaths in some groups like the elderly or chronically ill or immune compromised people. The second way COVID-19 makes people severely ill is that their immune systems actually mount a response to fighting this new virus that is too good. This is the pathway that is more likely to explain why some healthy adults get really sick and die, but babies with an immature immune system don't seem to get sick much. After the person is infected with the coronavirus, their body launches an aggressive inflammatory response and releases a large amount of what are called pro-inflammatory cytokines. This reaction has been termed a cytokine storm and is associated with organ failure and high death rates. This is what happened to my otherwise healthy yogi, breathworker, Reiki master friend in his 30s who got COVID-19 before vaccination was available. He was in ICU and it was touch and go for a bit and has had months of slow and painful recovery with long COVID, the post-viral syndrome associated with coronavirus. By all means, keep yourself as healthy as possible and take whatever vitamins your health team recommend are useful in your situation. But please keep in mind that all the mail order online and homemade remedies in the world are not going to help in the situation of a cytokine storm response. Claim number six. Instead of saying, don't trust the media, they're all funded by pharma, they'll say, just asking the question, it was a largely peaceful protest. Why are independent journalists showing us such different footage to the mainstream media? When I see the sport news, I expect to see the parts of the soccer where they're kicking goals, not the bits where nothing is happening. It's standard reporting practice to show the highlights or dramatic parts of anything. Saying it was largely peaceful belies the fact that some of it wasn't. It's like saying he's such a gentle guy 98% of the time that he bashes his girlfriend the other 2% isn't a big deal. If you feel as though mainstream media are only towing a line their funders want them to, it's good practice to ask who those independent journos are and do some digging into their funding and motives too. One of the two main independent journalists, in inverted commas, quotation marks, in Melbourne right now, getting hundreds of thousands of views on his videos is backed by a Canadian owned company. Their website says they rely on the generosity of donors and their reporters include people who are known anti-Muslim campaigners and as per the example above, people who have been convicted of assault against a partner in the past. A quick look at the merchandise section of the parent company website sees a variety of t-shirts with nationalist and individualist slogans, anti-Biden artwork and photoshopped images of Dr. Fauci made to look like Pinocchio. 
For context, Dr. Fauci is the chief medical advisor to the US president. Trump called Fauci a radical masker and stated in a recent interview that he did pretty much the opposite of what Fauci advised in his handling of the pandemic while president. So far, over 43 million Americans have been infected and 691,000 have died from COVID-19. What benefit could these reporters see in curating their own versions of news and labeling the mainstream as evil sellouts? My belief is that they are not concerned about human rights at all, but collecting an audience of disgruntled and angry people who they hope will stick with them and their potentially Trumpist ideas when the Australian politicians they support oh, and the Australian politicians they support when the vaccination debate is over. Claim seven. Instead of claiming vaccines are killing hundreds of people, they'll say, just asking the question, if over 500 deaths have been reported after the jab, why are we not talking about vaccine side effects? What else are they hiding from us? Every week, the Therapeutic Goods Association, the TGA, releases a report. It's called COVID-19 Vaccine Weekly Safety Report, and it's about reported side effects. The report from the 23rd of September 2021 tells us that 24.8 million doses had been administered in Australia by that time. It notes that 556 deaths happened in the weeks after people were vaccinated and these have been received and reviewed by medical experts. Of those 556 cases that were received and reviewed, nine of these deaths have been caused by COVID-19 vaccination. The other 500, 400, sorry, 547 deaths were deemed not to have been directly caused by the vaccination. It's kind of like giving out 24.8 million doses of bananas, then waiting a few weeks, then saying over 500 deaths from bananas. Yes, some people are going to die soon after eating bananas, but only a tiny, tiny fraction are going to be as a direct result of a bad reaction to those bananas. In contrast, there's been 101,000 cases of coronavirus in Australia and 1,256 people at the time of me writing this post had died with COVID-19. As for not hiding adverse reactions, oh, as for not hiding things, our local news was all over it when a woman died of a vaccine reaction a few months ago. The ABC are literally running articles titled Early Detection Treatment Behind Lower Rate of Mortality from Rare AstraZeneca-Related Blood Clots. The full TGA reports are available freely online. Claim, I think we're up to claim number eight. Claim number eight. Instead of saying health professionals are being gagged, they'll say, just asking the question, why can't doctors make reports about side effects? Why are our health professionals being gagged? The real question here is, can doctors report side effects? This answer from the TGA website. Consumers can report adverse events to the vaccine to their health professional and ask them to report on their behalf. Some health professionals or hospitals may not want or have the time to do this, or it may not be in line with their hospital or health service policy. Consumers, that is people who suspect a vaccine related side effect or their carers, also have the option to report to their state or territory health departments, to the NPS Medicine Wise Adverse Medicine Events Line, 
or report to the TGA directly through though. So no cases of side effects are prevented from being lodged. Claim number eight. Instead of claiming lockdown is literally killing our kids, they'll say, just asking the question, with lockdowns continuing, why are we ignoring the statistics on suicide and mental health? We must open up to save our young people's lives. Data from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare's National Suicide and Self-Harm Monitoring System tells us more people are accessing crisis lines and mental health services since the pandemic began and ambulance and emergency department attendances for suicidal thoughts and self-harm are up in New South Wales in Victoria. Despite this, suicide rates have not increased in Australia's eastern states, with great thanks to the crisis and mental health services as above. In some journalistic sleuthing, Clementine Ford noted the spokesperson for the Shadow Pandemic Victoria Group, supposedly aiming to highlight poor mental health in children, is head of the Liberal Party's branch in Higgins, an affluent part of Melbourne. Her husband is chair of a fundraising arm for the Liberal Party. The state Liberal Party is pretty keen to take advantage of Dan Andrews and Labor's low popularity come next election. They conveniently get great airtime on Sky News and other Liberal-friendly platforms. Unsurprisingly, they say lockdowns must end for the good of our kids. Lockdown is hard and much harder for some than others. The financial struggle and economic vulnerability that goes with lockdown is a reflection on the classist policies of the federal government, the branch of government in charge of taxing the rich, which they don't do, and giving to the needy, which they also don't do, not on lockdown itself. My guess is that opening up before vaccination targets are reached, having hospital systems unable to cope with an influx of patients and watching their family members die unnecessarily would also be pretty rubbish for young people's mental health. I argue that financial compassion from the federal government and emotional support from the state governments, rather than separating mothers from babies in Melbourne Towers or deploying army helicopters on Western Sydney while Bondi parties, while giving the majority of the population time to get fully vaccinated would be a much sounder strategy for mental health support than opening up prematurely. Since I wrote this post, I have also become aware of data around the Delta variant and hospitalisation rates for children. These are troublesome and they will be coming to light more and more as Australia opens up and our children under 12 can't be vaccinated. I think this is really important to consider as well when we're discussing the mental health of young people, that they and their friends, when school, particularly when school reopens, will be at greater risk of being physically sick and experiencing the effects of both long COVID and psychological distress. <sighs> Claim number nine. Instead of saying disabled or people with medical conditions dying don't really bother me, they'll say, just asking the question, what percentage of these deaths are from healthy people? Can we truly make the best decisions for ourselves without data on age and underlying health conditions being freely available? Despite what we have been led to believe in our culture that praises individual achievements and tells us we are unique and beautiful flowers, we are not better than anyone else, regardless of what health conditions they do or don't have. We have a responsibility to protect those who are vulnerable. And the, thing, the way we do that 
is conveniently by doing the things that keep us most safe too. Washing our hands, physically distancing, wearing masks and getting vaccinated if possible. I'm a mum. I don't need data on someone else's age or health status to know that the person listed as a woman in her 40s is not a statistic but someone's child and maybe someone's mother too. The man in his 60s may be someone's grandpa, uncle or brother and I don't want to be the one to pass it on to them either. If you're really curious though, a nurse from Royal Melbourne Hospital Emergency Department has been sharing their stats with permission on her Instagram and I'll include the handle for Mariam Abu Eid in the show notes. Of the entire Victorian population at the 28th of September, 47% of people were fully vaccinated 30% had had one dose of a vaccine and 23% were unvaccinated. There were, 6, 000, there were over 6,600 COVID cases active in Victoria at that time. At Royal Melbourne Hospital the same day, 16 of 20 beds in the COVID section of their ICU were being used. Patients were aged 32 to 70. And of the 16 patients in ICU, 13 were unvaccinated and three had had one dose. 14 of those 16 people required intubation, so that means ventilated, being ventilated through a tube, and also life support. One of the cases was 31 weeks pregnant. Let me break that down differently. Fully vaccinated people, 47% of the population, contributed zero of 16 cases in ICU. Partially vaccinated, so 30% of people, contributed three of 16 ICU cases. Unvaccinated people, 23% of the total population contributed 13 of 16 ICU cases. This data is being replicated at hospitals all around Australia in outbreak areas, across New Zealand, across the UK, across the world. Please, please, please don't let their just asking the question get to you. Often you can type their claim into Google with the words fact check at the end and you'll find many resources that will have done the fact checking for you. If you can't find answers, please feel free to ask me. It's been a big couple of years, but I truly believe we are on the way out of this mess. Let's get there together with actual conversations, actual information and real support to make as many people as possible feel safe and make safe choices. You can do this by sharing this podcast with a friend and, as I said before, asking any questions of me so that I can find the answers myself or pass them on to the expert team that I'll be interviewing over the next couple of episodes. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please remember to subscribe and leave a five-star review and share with anyone you feel may benefit from this content. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join me on social media at Anna Cusack Postpartum and head to my website www.annacusack.com.au to check out the ways we can work together. Please use the contact form on the website to inquire about having me run workshops with your client groups or book me for corporate speaking or professional development presentations. See you next episode.